So earlier this year, NASA landed the Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars, pressing forward on one of the goals of its Mars exploration program, namely, quote, to provide a continuous flow of scientific information and discovery through a carefully selected series of robotic orbiters and landers and mobile laboratories interconnected by a high bandwidth Mars Earth communications network. It's pretty grand. But not purely a scientific endeavor, the agency also explicitly admits that exploring Mars demonstrates the United States' political and economic leadership as a nation, improves the quality of life on Earth, and helps us to learn about our home planet, and expands U.S. leadership in the peaceful international exploration of space. Perhaps your parents and grandparents will hear echoes of the mid-century space race here, where going to the moon was not just a matter of disinterested scientific inquiry, but also a hotly contested and very public display of geopolitical prominence. But as even that flight manager on the podcast this morning, <laughs> uh, as she, she reminds us, the uh, current Mars mission isn't just some neo-Cold War showmanship. In the long term, the Mars exploration program aims at sustained human presence on the Martian surface. So at least in the promotional material set up by NASA, our country's accelerating interest in the red planet could be understood not simply as a matter of national interest, but more broadly as a testament to the aspirations and achievement of humanity. The view of space exploration as an emblem, not just of our own country's greatness, but of the greatness of the spirit of the whole of humanity Find support, too, in the wave of global efforts to explore beyond our terrestrial home. In the final weeks of 2020, an unmanned capsule brought lunar rocks back to China. It's the last time soil samples were retrieved from the moon since the Soviet's Luna 24 mission brought back just a few ounces of rubble in an earlier geopolitical era. China also plans for a manned mission to the moon, and after launching their own space program in 2007, India as well plans to join the United States and Russia and China as the fourth nation to fly beyond the reaches of our atmosphere. We might look to these developments as a kind of democratization of space exploration, where technology allows increasingly more and more of the world's population to have a share in the Earth-adjacent cosmos. Well, democratization might be jumping the gun because outside the realm of geopolitics, a coterie of, one might say, self-aggrandizing oligarchs <laughs> has positioned itself as the vanguard of new cosmic robber barons, Bezos, Musk, maybe Zuckerberg next week. <laughs> so in as much as we might look to NASA's perseverance and Indian programs with an optimistic spirit of cosmic triumph, Others definitely see totems of hyperwealth, those who reside at the heights even beyond the super tall skyscrapers on Billionaire's Row on 57th Street. It's definitely a new kind of zip code envy. <laughs> Not there quite yet, but anyways, these kinds of mixed feelings or even unease about extraterrestrial endeavors did not arise only with our latest period of space conquest. Writing in the middle of the 20th century, one of the most celebrated contemporary political theorists, Hannah Arendt, looked to similar developments of her own time 
with a suspicious eye. The incipient Cold War race to the moon and the launching of Sputnik and rest in peace, Laika, the Russian cosmodog, were for Arendt, quote, far from being a harmless or unequivocally triumphant enterprise. In her book, The Human Condition, and in an essay, The Conquest of Space and the Stature of Man, which is itself the last chapter of another book, Between Past and Future, she notes that, ironically, the cosmic triumphs of mankind will only lessen his importance. She ends that essay with a foreboding, if I find somewhat cryptic conclusion. If we come to conquer space, then, quote, the stature of man would not simply be lowered by all standards we know of, but the stature of man would have been destroyed. What does Arendt mean with these pessimistic statements? Hasn't space exploration given us everything from Velcro to beautiful nebula photographs? Shouldn't we see humanity's ascent to space as a scientific miracle? And even so, is Arendt's criticism maybe outdated? How might she, who died nearly 50 years ago, evaluate our new era of space exploration, one undeniably different from the Cold War tension of mutually assured destruction that she saw around herself? What I hope to do here today is to draw out, even briefly, some of the threads of criticism in Arendt's writings about space exploration. First, on varieties of inequality that arise from it. Second, some epistemological problems with the scientific interrogation of environments that are hostile to human existence. And finally, how the scale of space travel might invite some of the totalitarian modes of thinking that Arendt finds so alarming in her Origins of Totalitarianism, her work that we read in the Columbia Corps. By way of conclusion, I'll look at just a couple other thinkers on the topic of astronomy and space exploration for some alternative outlooks for our new cosmic era. Okay, first thread, inequality. In her human condition, Hannah Arendt says that the three great events stand at the threshold of the modern age and determine its character. The European arrival in the Americas, the Protestant Reformation, and the invention of the telescope. <laughs> we might scoff at this triad, uh, the first two responsible for nearly unmatched political and at times violent upheavals, and the third a quiet academic innovation in an observatory. It's a little weird. <laughs> but the strangeness isn't lost to Arendt. Acknowledging the incongruity, she writes, if we could measure the momentum of history as we measure natural processes, we might find that what originally had the least noticeable impact, man's first tentative steps toward the discovery of the universe, has nevertheless constantly increased its cultural import. An asteroid extinction event might be equal in importance to the recombination of DNA molecules that sets the stage for generations of biological change. Aside from the scale of time with the ballooning effects of technological invention, Arendt wants us to see the invention of the telescope in its broader epistemological effects. Whereas crossing the Atlantic and cracking Christian unity have changed our political and economic realities, 
expanding global trade and inverting notions of moral authority, the telescope radically reoriented our epistemological standpoint. Arendt writes, the modern astrophysical worldview, which began with Galileo and its challenge to the adequacy of the senses to reveal reality, have left us a universe of whose qualities we know no more than the way they affect our measuring instruments. Or as Arendt puts it in the opening paragraphs of her essay, The Conquest of Space and the Stature of Man, the workings of the universe, quote, are not phenomena, appearances, strictly speaking, uh, strictly speaking, for we meet them nowhere, neither in our everyday world nor in the laboratory. We know of their presence only because they affect our measuring instruments in certain ways. That's on page 44. In other words, Arendt worries that as we study the reaches of space, gravitational waves, black holes, so forth, we begin to confuse the study of the human experience with the monitoring of subtle instrumentation. We're not watching the world, we're watching the dials. As this instrumentation has become increasingly complex, scientists and laity are increasingly separated. Experts, those who study something that is incomprehensible and inaccessible, separate themselves off from humanity. And especially as the experience of the world as the rest of us experience it. They remove themselves from, and here I use this term in the most foundational and even etymological sense, they remove themselves from common sense. Arendt writes, it was indeed their search for true reality that led those scientists to lose confidence in appearances in the phenomena as they reveal themselves of their own accord to human sense and reason. Arendt hints at how the scientific preoccupation, preoccupation with events that are not apparent to human sense and reason has in some way created a rift between the scientific class and the rest of us. Has space exploration, like other branches of highly technical, highly specialized knowledge, codified a kind of political and epistemic inequality. On page 48 of her essay, she writes, it seems to follow that causality, necessity, and lawfulness are categories inherent in the human brain and applicable only to common sense experiences of earthbound creatures. Does Arendt here advocate for a kind of Luddite rejection of advanced science? Does she want us to turn away from the exploration of the cosmos and simply return to the nuts and bolts work of, I don't know, infrastructure bills? <laughs> Stuff that we can all understand, lest we create a kind of novel priesthood of multi-dimensional theoreticians. On the one hand, no, we're not supposed to return to some kind of utilitarian view where we only engage in projects that are oriented toward the benefit of the common man. Arendt's criticisms of space exploration are not this kind of letter rejection of science, one that pessimistically views our trips to Mars as a kind of doomed Icarus narrative, one that doesn't doubt our ability of scientific miracles. Nor does Arendt want us to worry about the cost of space exploration. Near the end of this essay, she writes, all objections raised against space exploration on a purely utilitarian level that is, it's too expensive, the money were better spent on education and the improvement of citizens, on the fight against poverty and disease, or whatever other worthy purposes may come to mind, seem to me slightly absurd. 
out of tune with the things that are at stake and whose consequences today appear still quite unpredictable, end quote. In other words, Arendt doesn't think that scientists operate on utilitarian criteria. She continues, the simple fact that physicists split the atom without hesitation, the very moment they knew how to do it, although they realized full well the enormous destructive potentialities of their operation, demonstrates that the scientist qua scientist does not even care about the survival of the human race on earth, or for that matter, about the survival of the planet itself. Does the progress of science and physics in particular show that the so-called utilitarian considerations are already off the table, that the health and well-being of real human beings is secondary, even peripheral? In some ways then we might see Arendt's criticism of space exploration and perhaps nuclear physics as one rooted in our perennial themes in contemporary civilization about equality or perhaps in Kantian terms about human dignity especially seen through the lens of Arendt's preoccupation with atomic weapons and military research, does technological challenge rest on a foundation of seeing humans as mere means to the end of scientific refinement? Does the scientist set herself up as a kind of aristocrat? It's especially important as we confront the very real possibility of separating humanity across two planets one, a playground for the immeasurably wealthy and immeasurably intelligent, and the other, the cosmic leftovers for the rest of us. Okay, let's move to this uh, more particular epistemological element. We could be missing the point of Arendt's essay if we merely look at her occasional allusion to issues of human equality. Perhaps the most prominent thread of her essay here uh, rests on Arendt's point, it's not simply about equality, stratification, and elitism, although it is deeply related to these political and social issues. But more important in her eyes is an epistemological problem with space exploration's adulteration of our ideas of what we can come to know about the universe and the kinds of things that we should try to know about it. Especially in the human condition, Arendt makes frequent allusion to the Cartesian study of the self, the meditative interrogation of what it means to be a thinking thing. For Descartes, the study of the external world begins with a better understanding of how we think, what it means to perceive the outside world, and the degree to which we can take our impressions of our environment as trustworthy representations of what is really out there. Arendt's interest in Descartes becomes clear when we look at her comments on Werner Heisenberg, known perhaps best of all for his eponymous uncertainty principle, that our measuring of scientific data is influenced by the very measuring of it. So the idea of having some entirely, quote, objective picture of the universe is fundamentally impossible. In Arendt's words, Heisenberg showed conclusively, this is on page 52, Heisenberg showed conclusively that there is a definite and final limit to the accuracy of all measurements obtainable by man-devised instruments. Since we are left in a situation in which man has lost the very objectivity of the natural world, so that man in his hunt for objective reality suddenly discovered that he always confronts himself alone. Like Descartes, 
Heisenberg's physical discoveries show us our understanding, uh, show us how our understanding of the world relies first on our, our understanding of who we are and what it even means for us to observe. Launching from Descartes and Heisenberg, Arendt observes here a deep irony about space exploration as we consider the kinds of knowledge we gather about the furthest reaches of the universe, far beyond our far-fetched fantasies of human exploration. Heisenberg's principle is a bit heady, for me at least, <laughs> but Arendt sees in space exploration the most pointed instantiation of this epistemological defeat. The astronaut, she explains, shot into outer space and imprisoned in his instrument-ridden capsule where each, in, where each actual physical encounter with his surroundings would spell immediate death, might well be taken as the symbolic incarnation of Heisenberg's man. The man who will be the less likely ever to meet anything but himself and man-made things. That's on page 52. Rather than encounter the universe, we encounter those dials. Rather than encounter the expanse of space, we encounter the confinement of a space pod. As she writes in The Human Condition, quote, we find instruments. And instead of nature or the universe, man encounters only himself. At least part of Arendt's ambivalence or even pessimism about space exploration stems from a Heisenberg and Descartes influenced view that the human's expeditions into space for all the miles traversed and all the environmental dangers held at bay give only an illusory sense of progress. Quote, he would only take possession of what is his own, although it took him a long time to discover it. What I think Arendt means here, and I'm honestly not entirely sure that I understand her completely, is that the notion of, quote, conquering space and adding to the domain of humanity is not exactly like discovering a new island or discovering a new vein of precious metal in a mine. Rather than find new places for humanity to live or to understand or to experience, we merely find more places in space that are fundamentally, even lethally, inaccessible to our human interaction. Okay, last Arendtian suspicion. <laughs> Even more than the futility of the so-called con conquest of space, the scale of space travel is especially troubling to Arendt. Distancing ourselves from the mundane activities and creations of mankind by looking at the activities of our earthly lives from the perspective of empty space of the universe, our, quote, activities will indeed appear to ourselves as no more than overt behavior, by which I take Arendt to mean a kind of clinical laboratory behavior. By zooming out, so to speak, and viewing humanity from the standpoint of cosmic detachment, all our pride in what we can, uh, what we can, uh, what we can do will disappear into some kind of mutation of the human race. The whole of technology seen from this point in fact, no longer appears as the result of a conscious human effort to extend man's material powers, but rather as a large-scale biological process 
That's on page 54 near the very end of her essay. After reading Arun's essay a few times, this comment about the, quote, large scale biological process really jumped out at me. A similar thought appears in the human condition where she marvels at, or perhaps stresses over, the astounding human capacity to think in terms of the universe while remaining on earth, and perhaps even more astounding human, human ability to use cosmic laws as guiding principles for terrestrial action. In both of these texts, then, Arendt sees the exploration of the wider universe as an invitation to see all of humanity as almost a blip in the cosmic radar, a moment in time, a fleck in the ocean. For those of you in contemporary civilization, you may well know Arendt's discomfort with the notion of viewing human behavior through the lens of, quote, process. In that text, Arendt stresses how the 20th century's horrors stem from a belief that, quote, men are born and die and can be only regarded as an annoying interference with higher forces. Totalitarian government, she continues, exists neither for nor against men. It is supposed to provide the forces of nature or history with an incomparable instrument to accelerate their movement. She looks to the Nazi and Soviet regimes as they understood racialized Darwinism and economic determinism respectively as unstoppable laws of movement that govern the direction of human history. And by, by becoming convinced that these immutable forces, Arendt sees that, quote, the inhabitants of a totalitarian country are thrown into and caught in the process of nature or history for the sake of accelerating its movement. And as such, they can only be executioners or victims of its inherent law. I wonder if the worry that these kinds of inherent laws can persuade humans to abandon their regular moral intuitions undergirds both origins and also Arendt's comment in The Conquest of Space and the Stature of Man. The comment about humanity views as a large-scale biological process. Humans are not simply cogs in the mechanical universe, nor are we some element in an Einsteinian equation. Arendt wants us to resist those neutral, objective evaluations of human life since they, marry, they very well might invite us to turn scientific detachment into anti-humanist nihilism. I think it's a real open question for reading Arendt across these various texts. Does she find the vastness of the universe, its steady application of physical laws? Does she find that a kind of ruthless domination? Does only social life on earth and especially life on earth distanced from the constraints of natural forces? Does that social life on earth afford opportunities for spontaneity and maybe freedom? Arendt's views of space exploration give us some generally sour ideas to consider. Space travel might segment our human community, not just by yawning gaps of wealth inequality that space travel makes so apparent, 
but in our no longer shared conceptions of what the natural world even is. So perhaps in the worst scenario, space travel might even further convince atomized Americans, a real worry to both Arendt and Tocqueville, that our lives are controlled by inexorable cosmic processes that we shouldn't really bother resisting. Why tend our gardens when the whole universe is racing toward inevitable heat death? <laughs> well, does it have to be this way? In what ways might Arendt imagine that we could explore the cosmos without these anti-humanist pitfalls? Does space exploration, or really any kind of hyper-specialized scientific expertise, necessarily lead us into an era defined by epistemic aristocracy? Or worst of all, a kind of detached cosmic amorality? By way of conclusion, I offer a couple alternative meditations on the universe that might give us ways of avoiding these kinds of Arendtian pitfalls. First, we need to recognize that the study of the cosmos did not start with the space program, nor did it even begin with Galileo and Copernicus. The ancients, this is the classicist speaking, <laughs> uh, were fascinated by the stars above them, perhaps because in the total absence of nighttime light pollution, they were able to see the galaxies and the stars in ways that we, at least those of us on the Eastern seaboard, will never ever experience. In Greco-Roman antiquity, man's relationship with space was not only one of conquest or territorial expansion, but instead one of intellectual contemplation. One of the most popular books of the ancient world, in fact, was Aratus's Phenomena, a poem about the constellations, and even more germane to Arendt's essay, uh, Cicero's De Republica, or On the Commonwealth, famously ends with a meditation on the so-called music of the spheres and the structure of the universe, trying to find man's place within it. In some Ciceronian version of the so-called prime mover argument, the final book of De Republica asserts, the beginning of motion comes from that which is moved by itself, and it can neither be born nor, nor die, Otherwise, the whole heaven and all nature would have to collapse and come to a stop, and there would be no force that it could find to move it, end quote. I suppose we might use the immensity of the universe, its infinitude of time and space, to refine our notions of metaphysics. In pre-modern texts, those written before Galileo, teach us about alternative ways to conceive of our relationship with outer space. Yeah, this is surely true. Not a relationship defined by measurement and calculation, but one defined, defined by insurmountable inaccessibility, one uh, that precludes knowledge but inspires contemplation. Is astronomical contemplation different from astronomical science? Is our own contemporary astronomical science still contemplative in some ancient sense? You might think about those two strands there. But even modern texts, those written after the disrupting claims of Copernicus and Galileo, take a much more optimistic approach to these kinds of endeavors. Perhaps the most interesting contrast to Arendt's view of astronomical exploration comes in the writings of Thomas Paine, whose Age of Reason, written in 1794, takes stock of modernity's cosmic investigations and their bearing on religious belief. Writing centuries before Arendt, Thomas Paine observed that, quote, 
Though the belief in a plurality of worlds was familiar to the ancients, it is only within the last three centuries that we have begun to understand this truth, end quote. So like Arendt, Payne underscores that the kind of astronomical knowledge gained in the modern era is really different in quality from the astronomical meditations of the ancient world. Always an irreverent deist, Payne lampoons the, quote, solitary and strange conceit that the Almighty, who had millions of worlds equally dependent on his protection, should quit the care of all the rest and come to die in our world because they say one man and one woman had eaten an apple, end quote. But irreverence aside, <laughs> Payne offers a view of cosmological exploration that integrates the well-being of the human community into its endeavors. He writes, all the planets resolve in sight of each other, and therefore, the same universal school of science presents itself to all. The solitary idea of a solitary world rolling or at rest in the immense ocean of space gives place to the cheerful idea of a society of worlds so happily contrived as to administer, even by their motion, instruction to mankind. I'm reminded actually of Diana Trujillo, uh, the woman on the uh, podcast this morning. Um, her answer to Kara Swisher's question, uh, where Kara Swisher asked, are we alone? And Diana Trujillo, she answers, I believe there will be a turning point where we learn that we are not alone in the universe, where we can start seeing things more peacefully rather than just uh, that it's there for the taking. So our era of space exploration, rather different from the one that Arendt saw, might not end in conquest, but congress instead. Thanks. <laughs>